Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. My name is Tobias Zimmergren. I am back again with Yusi Roine. What's up? Hi, Toby. I'm always surprised that when we start our recording and we use Zoom for this, uh, when you hit record button, there's been an update to Zoom. So there's this pleasant lady voice announcing that the meeting is being recorded now. And yep. it's, it's sort of stopping you on the tracks. Is there somebody else in the room now? Yep. <laughs> Who else is here? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what is, what's up for me? It's been the first week of 2021 for me where I've had some time to focus. And, and what I mean by this is that not every day is filled with workshops and webinars and, and billable work, but now I've actually had some time to do those random small things you need to do for a company from time to time. So I've spent considerable amount of time to, in, in fiddling our company PowerPoint template. And, and it's not my strength, but it's been fun in a way that you sort of have to learn the, the essence of certain functionalities in PowerPoint, and then you need to keep on testing. And I feel that if you build a custom PowerPoint template, you really get the, the master slides correctly done. It's really cumbersome. It's, it's not a modern approach to build those. So I feel I'm back in 1995, switching back and forth between the presentation and the backend view. And, and figuring out that does this need to go here or there. But I got it done. It, it took too many hours. But that's probably been the highlight of my week so far. <laughs> Back to PowerPoint. Uh, <laughs> I can relate. I've done a lot of that. And when I had my, my company and, and I designed my products and services, that was also a, a key part in the branding that we needed to set up the PowerPoint templates. But... One thing I learned along the way is I would rather spend $15 outsourcing that and not do it at all. Just send over the logo and the idea of how I want it and then get you know a, a set of templates back with all your stuff incorporated. So that's how I did it and then adjusted it. But I agree, it's a fairly cumbersome process. It's still very outdated in how you design the master slides, if you will, and yeah, go back and forth between that. So... I'm sorry for your loss of time, <laughs> but no, no I'm worries. glad you it got was, your templates. <laughs> it was relaxing at the same time because you don't have to worry about something super technical. Everything you see is something you know eventually you'll be capable of fixing, but it just takes time. Yeah. So how about for you? What's been the highlight of your week so far? So pretty intense here. I am studying every morning. So... Even this morning, I spent about one and a half hours studying. And these are some leadership and, and IT classes, which is, you know, these are non-technical types of classes. So I, I spend some time doing that every day, and that's pretty good. Gets me up in the morning. But I'm also packing for the move because we're now moving in less than two weeks to the new, which is an old house, but our new, our new house. So we've stayed here now in this temporary apartment for about half a year, and it's time to move again. So this time we're moving the entire family, four people, two kids, to the new house, and hopefully we will stay there for a while. 
but it's a bit cumbersome because everything needs to be packed down in boxes. The moving company will come and grab it, but I still need to maintain my home office. So this is the, the home office is the last thing that will be, uh, you know, disassembled, I hope. So I am trying to organize the preparations for the move in such a way that the home office, that room I have my home office remains entirely intact until the day before we actually move. And then I have to kind of stress, pack everything down and then somehow get it up in the new house. Um, I'm a little bit worried about after the move, I don't actually have a home office until I build it. So I'm not sure how to do the recordings. I will probably have to buy a cardboard box, isolate it with some foam on the inside and crawl into it and then have my silent space in there for the recordings. Maybe that's an idea. Or, or we could do a family episode. I'll bring my kids, you, be, you bring your kids, we do the recording. I'm quite sure, though, that we couldn't talk anything about Azure anymore. It would be more about what's, what's a good cartoon on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's probably going to be Peppa Pig on this side. <laughs> same here, same here. So as we say in, in, in Finland, whenever you have your moving day, just let me know that's the day when I have a sore back. <laughs> yeah, that's why we have a company coming and picking up the stuff, because I, I realize... The time we spent in the past on doing the actual move physically, I really like doing the move, but yeah, you, the injuries you can accumulate and the stress you put on yourself and, and people around you, it's not worth it. So the whatever costs, I think it's 500 euros or so. So it's pretty cheap. They come and take everything, two big moving trucks, ship everything to the new house and they un, you know, unload it. And if you want, they can also unpack it, which is a convenient service. Sounds good. Sounds good. I always uh, seem to be using a moving company as well. It makes life so much easier. Alrighty. So today we have a look at Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes. And we spoke about Azure Arc when we had Thomas Maurer back in episode 80. So that was about a month ago, I think. And Azure Arc got some updates now at build 2021. So, so Toby... Uh, now that you've had some time to reflect on Azure Arc since we last spoke about it, and I think we've sort of touched on, on some of the topics like Azure governance and Azure policies that sort of tie neatly into Azure Arc. Uh, I sort of think that Azure Arc might not probably be something you would be working on a daily basis, mostly because this is the whole hybrid thing. But are you seeing some use cases you could be leveraging in the future with Azure Arc. I am thinking about a couple of use cases, and I know we talked about that in the episode with uh, Thomas Mauer as well. Um, I'm not using it today because we don't do hybrid at the moment. We are a cloud-only company, if you will. So everything we do is, is in the cloud. So we don't have the need for ourselves to do this. However, some customers have hybrid setups and you know some are on-prem and some are only cloud. Uh, so I, I do see a gap here. And in the past, coming back to the services we provide and the products we provide, I know some customers asked, how do we do, how do we utilize this solution? How do we do this thing? If we now have a couple of on-prem environments, we have a couple of things in the cloud and we want kind of a, a one pane of glass to see everything. I want a single place where I can maintain it, even though I have actual servers deployed, you know, across different environments. 
So I do see some use cases where this might be interesting, but for me, I don't use it. So I don't have the insights. I have used Kubernetes quite a lot, but not um, Azure Arc enabled Kubernetes. So I'm looking forward to hammer down some questions to you in this episode to see what you found out when you tried it out. Sounds good. And perhaps as a super brief refresher for somebody who didn't listen on episode 80, perhaps yet, but after this one might might tune into that one as well. Uh, I remember when, when the first preview bits for Azure Arc were announced. I think that was in 2020. Could have been 2019 though. And I spent one long afternoon configuring and, 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 and getting it up and running. And at the time, Azure Arc really seemed like a super lightweight service that allows you to deploy uh, agents to your multi-cloud or on-premises virtual machines. And then for those agents, you would have log analytics and they would enable you to run Azure policies on those VMs. And I figured, well, this is neat and nice and cute, but I have zero need for this. But I, I feel that in 2021, that Microsoft has been more vocal about the essence of Azure Arc in the sense that they foresee that Azure Arc is the future of multi-cloud. So the idea with Azure Arc is that it's a governance and management approach that allows you to manage and monitor and now deploy workloads elsewhere than in Azure. And Azure Arc projects these resources back to Azure. So as an example, if you deploy a bunch of virtual machines in your local Hyper-V cluster, you can then configure Azure Arc to project these back to Azure. So when you go to Azure and you have a look at your VMs, you will also see the VMs you have running locally and you can manage and control those. So that's sort of how I would dump down what Azure Arc has been up until now. So the capability you could do before is that you can deploy a Kubernetes cluster either in Azure or in on-premises or elsewhere. Let's, let's say uh, Google Cloud or, or Amazon's web services. And once you have that up and running, the new thing now is that you can manage the cluster and you can deploy additional workloads on that Kubernetes cluster that allow you to run Azure services locally in your cluster, but still manage those through Azure Arc. So that's sort of the, I, I would say the focus of this episode and perhaps the big thing that was announced. But be before we sort of dive down into these workloads, let's talk a little bit about, about Kubernetes. So I know you've been working more on that and, and I've resisted for a long time on, on, on doing a deep dive on, on Kubernetes because I've always felt it's this sort of IT pro approach built by developers that seems super messy in, in how you run your workloads in containers. But, yeah. but how, how would you say to somebody perhaps listening on this today and, and they're thinking that, should I learn Kubernetes? What sort of advice would you give them? Yeah, I, you know, that's a good question. And if I look back in, you know, the things I've done, the first answer to that question is Kubernetes is not the answer to everything, right? If you talk to some people, uh, if you spend some time in, in various parts of the online communities, you will see that 
people dictate that Kubernetes is the uh, solution to all problems. It is not. It can introduce quite a lot of new problems that you could not expect or anticipate if you've never worked with that before. Kubernetes is awesome. It can do a lot of things and it can solve many challenges we have in distributed applications, running in the cloud, stuff like this. But it's not a, a means uh, to an end to solve all problems. So for me, the most important step is, as always, that it depends uh, is the, the answer where you have to make a, a decision. Does Kubernetes actually fit into the picture at all? And if so, what problems can I solve using that? Or how can I make things more efficient or easier to manage or more cost-effective? For me, we moved away from Kubernetes in favor for Azure Container Instances because we spin up hundreds, five, 600 containers per day in various places. And then we run some jobs inside of them, uh, some heavy processing, and then we kill them off. And with Kubernetes, this was quite cumbersome to scale up and scale down and scale out the clusters. With ACI or Azure Container Instances, I solved that quite easily using functions as or orchestrating platform. So coming back to the question, Kubernetes can solve a lot of your problems, but first take a step back and see, is this the right technology for the problems I'm trying to solve? Or do I have problems right now that can be solved by using Kubernetes? Uh, and I did use AKS quite a lot, um, and I would still recommend that as a solution to many problems. Just be realistic about it. Uh, don't don't choose technology first and then apply it to a problem. You know, look at the problem first, and then see the different solutions that exist across the technology landscape, and then figure out what is the best fit. And now I kind of forgot what your question was. I just wanted to <laughs> to mention that. <laughs> that's that's solid advice, definitely, and. Every now and then, then uh, I, I work with customers in different companies and they might run Kubernetes and, and rarely they seem to run that locally. It could be locally, of course, but more often it's sort of tacked on top of a public cloud deployment. And, and I, I feel that often makes more sense. So now with the update for Azure Arc announced at Build 2021, is that you can deploy additional workloads on a Kubernetes cluster that you choose to run in Azure or outside Azure. And these supportive workloads are Azure App Service, meaning web apps, API apps, and so on, Azure Functions, Azure Logic Apps, Azure Event Grid, Azure API Management, and obviously you still have Azure Monitor, which was previously supported. So you get five new workloads, and all of these are the type of serverless workloads, like logic apps and functions. Let me build an, a custom API, perhaps, and that would be an Azure function. Now you can create that Azure function and have it hosted on top of Kubernetes that runs in your on-premises. But the beauty of this is that now you can manage that whole setup from Azure Portal. So you, you're, you're not going to end up with two different sort of platforms, even though you have two different locations and two different setups. But you can use the familiar tooling in Azure Portal and the scripts and, and, and with ARM templates and everything else. But you can now expand or extend your workloads to a possible Kubernetes cluster that you're already running. That sort yeah. of is the, is the big change now. 
And this is where it gets interesting because here, one of the challenges that I saw in the past, not just for me, but also customers we talked to is they know how to build app services, functions, logic apps, all the things you mentioned. But the solution for them going to, in this case, Kubernetes or uh, bringing things down from the cloud because of uh, legal requirements, compliance requirements, and regulatory uh, challenges that they had in various companies in various parts of the world, they had to bring things in-house uh, to their own data centers, their own servers. And that was quite cumbersome because it's not just about converting whatever solution you have to something that runs on a local server or IIS or whatever, because all the developers, they know app services and functions and how to build the solutions, how to troubleshoot them, how to work with all these things. So the, the problem was not just how do we make this a run somewhere else, but then you would have to kind of retrain everyone in how to build stuff because now you're suddenly not building an Azure function anymore. Now you're building something else running on IIS locally. So it's a wildly different game, even though it's still development. What I like about this is you apply everything you already know, all the time that your team or teams have invested into learning these things, operating these things, all the DevOps, DevSecOps, things, uh, processes you have going on, you can still apply that. So if you bring this now, the way I understand what you said is you bring this now down to Kubernetes on a local environment connected with Azure Arc, you can still work with these things like app services and functions the same way you did. It's but it's not running in the cloud. It's now running inside of your own data center. And you get kind of like the management plane in Azure Arc in, in the Azure portal. Exactly. And if you think about what hybrid was uh, perhaps just a couple of years ago, we had Azure and Office 365, which then sort of became Microsoft 365 in marketing. Uh, those would be the, the cloud workloads. And then in on-premises, you would have a bunch of virtual machines, a few networks, perhaps Active Directory, and then you would build a site-to-site -side VPN or Express Route between those two different data islands. And now you would effectively have a hybrid approach. But in essence, it would only allow you to run VMs locally or whatever else in the cloud and VMs in the cloud. Right. And I, I always felt that, yes, this is cute, this is nice, but this is simply picking up the legacy things we have in on-premises, lift and shift those to the cloud, and then perhaps start, start thinking that should we do something about the VMs, especially if we had old operating systems on those VMs in on-prem. If you float those to the cloud, you effectively have to upgrade those first. And suddenly you are at a crossroad where you think, do we really need the VM anymore? What if we picked up this workload within the VM? And, and transform that to something more cloud native, perhaps running in a container, perhaps running on a serverless platform. And suddenly you don't really need the VM anymore. And, and you stop again and think, why do we need the hybrid? Because we're effectively picking pieces from on-prem, floating those to the cloud, which is a migration process. And now they run differently in the cloud. We're never bringing those back to on-prem anymore. And now Azure Arc, I feel it's, it's more comprehensive because you get those serverless workloads. So I could create a custom function, have that run in Azure, or I could float that to my on-prem Kubernetes cluster, and it runs exactly the same. As long as I can manage that cluster and I can manage those containers and the nodes in the cluster and the pods 
and everything else. So I also feel that this introduces, uh, perhaps not in a hidden way, but in an unexpected way, this introduces a lot of things now you have to take care of in the on-prem, just so you can manage things from the cloud. And to me, when I set this up at home, to me, it was a surprise how complex it was just to get up and running. And I can only imagine in a corporate enterprise environment, how much more complex that would be. I think you mentioned in the previous episode um, where we talked with uh, Thomas Mauro that you have a problem, you want to solve it, you introduce Kubernetes and now you have five problems. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this, this is true in a sense. Uh. <laughs> it is, it is. So, so setting this up, what I, what I did when this was announced, um, I put the kids to bed and I figured, okay, I've got about 90 minutes before I need to go to bed. I, I like to go to bed quite early. So let me sit down and just sort of try to get this up and running without really reading too much the documentation because nobody has time for that. So what I first needed, I needed a Kubernetes cluster and I didn't have one readily available. So what I did is I deployed two clusters. And I realized this is against the best practices because you, you should sort of be fine with just one. So I deployed a K3S style Kubernetes cluster, which is the super minified version. And that runs on the Raspberry Pis. So I have a few of those. I figured, let me build a cluster on that and it will just run my containers. And then I built on a bunch of Ubuntu VMs hosted on Hyper-V in my local server, I built the micro K8S, so the micro Kubernetes. And the Raspberry Pi thing, yeah, I got the Kubernetes up and running, but nothing worked beyond that. I think it has to do with the architecture because it's an ARM architecture on the Raspberries and everything else in the cloud is, is usually x86 or AMD64. So I couldn't get any of the stuff deployed. It, it would just panic out. So what I then did is I continued with the Ubuntu VM. And, and what you need is Azure CLI. So you deploy that, everything still works. And now what the process is, if somebody wants to test this, is that you first, once your Kubernetes cluster is up and running, you first connect the cluster to Azure Arc. There's one command in Azure CLI, in AZ, um, what was the command? I can't recall it anymore because it's a lot of scripting. Anyway, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. So you first connect the cluster to Azure Arc. Once you have that, you get your heartbeat in Azure Portal. So you can go to Azure Portal, Azure Arc, select your cluster, and it will actually show you in real time how many nodes do you have, what's the... What's the um, CPU status at the moment, how much memory are you consuming? It's actually quite neat. And then you deploy monitoring, obviously, that you get a little bit more stuff. And then you add an extension for each of the services you'd like to run, so each of the workloads. So for app service, you have one extension. You deploy that, and now you can have, or, or you will automatically through that extension, you will get a bunch of containers deployed automatically to your Kubernetes cluster. And when I say a bunch of containers, I'm, I'm saying about 15 to 20. And once this is done, you add a custom location. So you connect your custom app service running on the Kubernetes connected to Azure Arc. You connect that 
with the Azure locations and you designate a custom location and you tag the custom location to support these extended services. And the whole reason for this is that now you can go to Azure portal and you can say, let me provision a new web app. And when you have a list of the locations, you have West Europe and North Europe, then you also will have uses home. So you select now that all one. customers will have uses home yes. as an <laughs> exactly. And, and, and once that's up and running, you can now deploy that web app and it will deploy that to your Kubernetes cluster running at home. So this is how it, how, how it would work in the movies. And for me, I think I spent about two evenings getting it just right. Because in Azure portal, when you get this started, it will auto-generate all of the scripts for you. But those scripts seem to be missing a few parameters here and there. So when you just blindly run them, they will fail. So I ended up sort of crafting through the scripts and, and rebuilding bits and pieces here and there. And you have to hop back and forth between PowerShell and Azure CLI. So it's a bit cumbersome. And some of the um, Azure CLI commands are in preview. So for example, adding the custom location, it ran for two hours. And then it finally said success. And I wasn't sure what's happening, but I just <laughs> left it running. So what I, what I like about what you just said is with the locations, you know, I, we touched on that in a couple of episodes. I, I know I'm ranting about compliance and regulatory compliance and, and all these things. One thing that keeps coming up from a lot of my customers, and it's been this way for the last decade uh, in various degrees. And the earlier days of this decade, uh, or the last 10 years, it was easier because a lot of people were still on-prem. Now in the cloud, we do get requests saying we cannot choose West Europe, North Europe, or you know whatever else exists in Europe, but we need our data to be in Europe, but it needs to be in the same city in our country, in our portions of the world or in our parts of the world. So some people want to, you know, because of regulatory requirements, they they have laws and, and regulations dictating that whatever data center they operate, they need to be in that city because that's where the main offices or the headquarters are. And that was not achievable because you could not really create your Azure location in, in such a sense. But with Azure Arc and, and with this way of connecting these services, when you can now define a custom location, you can say that this is company Contoso, one, two, three, headquarters, location, which matches that city and that exact location because it's in fact hosted inside of their own data center, but using the management tools of Azure. So this kind of solves many of those questions that customers talked about in the past, which I really had no idea. You know, if it doesn't fit the bill to use one of these regions that you have in Azure, then I'm not sure how to do it other than just going full on-prem. And now you can do that. You can still, so you go on-prem in a way, but you get all the, connected monitoring and all the kind of management plane in Azure, which is what they wanted. They didn't want to manage everything with custom tools. And that's what you get here. And I really like that. So I think that will help in dialogues around compliance and you know data sovereignty, where's my data, who has access to my data and all these questions that we get a lot. So that that is very interesting. So when you've set this up and you selected your locations and all right, everything is running, what do we need to think about? Because we come back to this in every episode when we talk about some new technology. 
what is that kind of a set me back? You know, often I go to the cloud and everything costs. Some things are super cheap or cost almost nothing or nothing. Some other things cost a lot. So what is this going to set me back other than the actual time now I've spent trying to get everything to work and my team is getting ramped up and I invest a lot of resources and time into it. What is the price tag for this? So in preview, in public preview, it's free. So Azure Arc doesn't cost you anything. And spinning up the Kubernetes, obviously, that requires hardware and software and time. But managing that and deploying those containers and having those containers run, effectively running Azure workloads, they do not cost anything. But it's worded so in the documentation that during the public preview, there's no cost. So obviously, there's going to be a cost. And I would imagine that that might mimic the cost of Azure Stack HCI. Also something we spoke on episode 80, and I figured it doesn't stand for hardcore infrastructure, but hyper-converged infrastructure. So in essence, running Azure workloads in certified hardware. And for that, you can rent the hardware, or you can run it on your own hardware. And I checked the cost yesterday for a customer and it was $9 per core per month of running a workload. So on paper, yeah, it, it doesn't look too bad. But then a client said to me, well, it used to be have 96 cores. So 96 <laughs> times $9, well, it's still not too much. But then you really have to invest into using that. So my expectation would be that they would perhaps bill per minute or per hour, let's say you run your Azure functions, uh, it, it would make more sense to build per core or just blindly per hour instead of per consumption like now with the regular Azure functions. So one thing with this is, you know, the story almost sounds too good to be true if I can do everything I do in the cloud on my on-prem environments. Do you know if there's any like limitations or anything that can set you back in terms of functionality compared to the cloud? So during the preview, um, which, which is still ongoing, I, I felt it's fairly fragile. So I ran the scripts, everything went through. I go to Azure portal, I click on my location, deploy a web app, it just errors out and says, well, you're still missing something. And there's really no undo. So we have to tear down some bits and start rebuilding it. So perhaps once we exit the public preview and it's, it's generally available, there's more guidance and, and there's, there's sort of better, how would I say, better deployment approach than running these huge scripts. And when I say a huge script, what I mean is an Azure CLI command with 27 parameters. And half of those are, are variables coming from previous commands. So, so rerunning those becomes quickly quite impossible because you don't know what's what anymore. And you have to start creating a notepad uh, on the side to figure out, okay, so this parameter should hold this ID, but this holds that ID and they need to be mixed and matched here. But the limitations uh, for this new functionality, running Azure workloads on top of Kubernetes over Azure Arc, it's only supported in East US and West Europe for now. I would expect this to be expanded in the future, but I, I figured 
that since the Azure CLI commands are in preview. So you actually have to get this preview bit for that extension to configure the whole thing. I, I figured there needs to be API updates on the Azure side as well. And perhaps Microsoft only deployed those to these two locations. But Kubernetes itself with Azure Arc, that works in, in most, most data centers now. Just the additional capabilities limited to these two. And plenty of smaller things are not available, like FTP publishing to web app, not supported. Managed identities, not supported. So for now, it's not production ready, but it's definitely something to start building and testing in seeing what the new sort of hybrid approach would look like in the future. All right, cool, very insightful. I, I think I can find a couple of use cases where I can at least try it out, experiment, especially with the custom data locations and see how that can fit into the regulatory compliance aspect that I'm dealing with. And if somebody is thinking of trying this out, uh, my setup was uh, a single node micro K8S. So a single node Kubernetes cluster, if you will. And that ran on uh, Ubuntu VM with 16 gigs of RAM and four cores, and it was fast. I, I wouldn't say I, I had to wait anything on my side. It, it, was, it was more about running those commands and waiting for Azure to pick them up. And beyond that, there's nothing special you need. Uh, a fixed public IP would be helpful because you need to fix that in the, in the custom location. But I figured that as long as I'm not rebooting my firewall at home, my public IP won't change. So I was fairly confident in, in just using my dynamic IP address as well. Alrighty, uh, so hopefully after listening on this and, and, and having a look at Azure Arc, uh, some of the listeners will try this out and, and, and let's see how that turns out. But we still have one more thing and that's going to be the surprising question. And I think it's my turn to ask you, Toby. All right. And uh, what's the most awkward or weirdest thing or tradition or approach or custom in Sweden that you think is perfectly normal for you as a Swede, but for anybody coming from outside Sweden would find it very, very odd? Um, so there is, well, I have quite a few of those. <laughs> in Sweden, we, uh, we do things in our way. And one thing is um, midsummer. So we celebrate midsummer. That is, we have actually a public holiday during midsummer because obviously it's we want to celebrate something, so we celebrate that, and we raise something called a maypole, or in Swedish a maistong, or midsummerstong, um, and that's like an activity that attracts all the families and and others. So we gather, um, perhaps now, in in this day and time, we might not have huge gatherings, but normally. We, uh, we gather families, friends, and everyone. We have a huge party, and we race this maypole, and that's a collective work where everyone kind of decorates this wooden pole with uh, you know, green sticks and whatever and leaves and whatever. So it becomes you know, what some consider a beautiful kind of maypole. We race it together. It's, it can be like five meters high, so quite tall. Um, when that's done, we dance around it. And we dance around it like little frogs. And that's where Sweden gets special for you. Um, and nobody I know can actually answer why we do that. It's a song called Smogrodona, uh, or The Small Frogs. 
everyone goes round and round around the maypole with their hands behind their backs, like a little frog tail. And we jump, you know, just jump or scoot forward in, in a ring around this maypole. And we sing small frogs, small frogs, very awkward thing. Um, you know, if you're raised in Sweden, it's like, oh, obviously you do that. And then when you get to know other cultures and you're like, why do we do that? <laughs> and there are some traditions tied to it, of course. And, uh, you know, what you should eat, you should eat herring and fresh potatoes and all these things that, you know, we kind of share across multiple um, traditions that we celebrate. So the, the typical Swedish celebration food, if you will. Um, and then I think, Uh, just like in Norway, and I think also in Finland, there is uh, a belief that if a girl picks seven different flowers in silence of the midsummer night and puts them underneath her pillow, she will dream of, of her future husband. And this is like something going way back. I don't even know if it's hundreds of years or whatever. It's a super old, um, super old thing. I don't know if anyone is actually doing that anymore, but that was a, a fun tradition growing up. You know, when we were kids, seven years old, you know, that was a fun thing to talk about. And then, of course, the perhaps more grown-up uh, addition or tradition that we do during Swedish Midsummer is to end the evening with a skimmedip at night. You know, normally it's not mandatory to be naked, obviously, but many will be completely naked. And, uh, you know, we just, after having a couple of schnapps, we just run and skim a dip, uh, you know, all of us. Strange thing also. You might hold reservations for not skin and dipping, and that's okay. Not something I do on a regular basis because I don't really like the cold water. Because in, in this <laughs> time of the year, it is usually still pretty cold in the water. This sounds slightly awkward. So there's some similarities <laughs> to the Finnish midsummers. And I think midsummers is in about two, three weeks from now. So we're yep. closing in on this weird tradition that you have. But one more quick question on this. I've, I've got this mental image in my head, and it might just be me, but when you have the pole up, uh, I've, I've seen pictures of, of people having from the pole, they have like, like strings or yarns, and everybody's holding one end of the yarn and skipping around the pole. Is that the same thing, or is that something else? I don't know. We, we never did that. I've also seen pictures and videos of that. Um, it's not something I'm familiar with, but I'm, I'm sure that People do that as well. We do all kinds of interesting things that may or may not relate to anything at all, really. Sounds good. So, so perhaps, perhaps if somebody listening on this is visiting Sweden uh, in a future midsummer, uh, which is end of June, then this might be something you get to experience. Yeah, bring swimwear and clothe your not too fancy about so if you have to run around like a frog and you you know sometimes you fall over because if you had a couple of schnapps and then have to jump like a frog for 10 minutes you know accidents happen so bring non-fragile clothes and swimwear that's my best tip solid advice Alrighty, thank you again for tuning in and until next week all right see you then Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. <laughs>